Okay, so Matthew 7 and verse 21. Just, we need some context here. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very well-known passage. It seems week after week we have uh, words, phrases, verses that are incredibly familiar to us. Not only to us in the church, but often to those outside the church as well. Whether it is the Lord's Prayer whether it's the concept of wolves in sheep's clothing, or whether it's the atheist's favorite verse in the Bible, judge not lest you be judged. Either way, this is clearly a passage of scripture that is well known. One of the things that we've been doing as we've been gradually going through this section of Matthew is we've been very, very careful to look at the context because what is going on here is not just a statement to Christians in churches, but rather at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel and he's calling upon the Jews who, remember, have been taught by the religious leaders of the day that because they're Jewish, they're all going to have a part in the kingdom to come. Like a like a liberal church, it's a case of, come on in, you, you, you're all going to be okay. Don't worry about changing your lives. Don't worry about repenting of sin. Just, just, you know, this is for everybody. And so it is that this is what people were taught. So when John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Jesus, he brings the message, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. Now is the time. Now is the moment. And whose side are you on? Are you going to trust in that religious liberalism that gives everybody an opportunity regardless of how they live and yet at the same time is incredibly legalistic about how you should live? Or are you going to repent and turn? And Jesus comes and preaches the same message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes around teaching that message. And the Sermon on the Mount is this expounded sort of uh, highlight reel of what Jesus is teaching people. What does it mean to repent? What do repentant people look like? And the Beatitudes really are the, the essence of what a repentant person looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the repentant people who get into the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And one of the things that has been very, very clear, and this is crucial for us to understand this today. One of the things that has been very clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that the Pharisees taught a whole bunch of stuff. They taught the law of Moses. They taught all their additional rules and regulations. But they got it wrong. They got it wrong. And so, rather than taking judge not out of context, it's very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that we do have to judge. We have to judge what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus is categorically saying, the Pharisaic approach to faith is wrong. And we've seen at places that's to do with legalism. Legalism is wrong. Checking boxes and keeping rules, thinking that you're going to be okay while not truly pursuing righteousness. But equally, this sort of open for all mentality that doesn't require change is equally erroneous. 
And so Jesus has been presenting the requirements of the law upon the Jews of that day if they are going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And he dealt with the false righteousness of the Pharisees. He made sure that those who truly have repented don't follow in that kind of false uh, righteousness in the way that they live. And really we're coming now in chapter 7 to the summing up of everything that we've covered And the reality is, and we're just going to very, very briefly sum up chapter 7 here. Chapter 7, judge not. If, If you are living the Pharisaic way and you are unrighteous, then you cannot judge the righteousness of those who are saved because of the log in your own eye. And so there is that warning that those who trust in Jesus are not going to be accepted by the religious people of that day. If you're seeking righteousness, the command in verse 7 is ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. In other words, if you really want to pursue Jesus, if you really want to pursue righteousness, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. And God will bless you for that. But by the time we get to verse 12, we saw that you need to do to others what you want done to you. And in the context of the previous verses, that means we who pursue righteousness must want righteousness for others. It doesn't mean give people whatever they want. It doesn't make, doesn't mean make them feel good. It means help them on the path to righteousness. And that's when we came to verses 13 and 14 which was verses that are so often used to speak of believers and unbelievers in the way that we use them, but in the context and flow of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14, the narrow way and the broad way, is pointing us to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about there are two different ways. And he's saying, he's saying to us, if you are going to pursue righteousness, it's a really narrow way, and it's really hard, and most people don't make it. But that's the way for us. And then he went into the section on the fruit and the trees. And he warned of false teachers. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it's absolutely clear he's speaking about the Pharisees. They are the false teachers. Giving rules that God never gave. Giving people a pass on things God never gave them a pass on. Just completely messing everything up. And he says they are the ones who are appearing to be religious and godly people. They appear as if they're sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And he says the way that you spot them is that you know their fruit. Now, this is last week's sermon. I don't want to repeat it, but suffice to say that... While this does involve character, it does involve how we live, it doesn't directly mean that. In fact, in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, it's got far more to do with the fact that you correctly interpret Scripture, that you take the Bible at face value, that you don't confuse it with the commands of men, that you don't compromise it, you don't add and you don't take away. And the Pharisees have have ruined the word of God. They have they have uh, twisted it. They have manipulated it. They have left out bits that suit them. They've added in bits that suit them. And they do it all to perceive and to give the impression that they are the righteous ones. And he says, that fruit is deadly. 
And the reason that they produce bad fruit is because they're not saved. They're not righteous people so that their lives aren't righteous. And that righteousness is seen in their approach to Scripture, in their approach to Jesus, and of course, in addition, how they live their lives. And so, when we finished last time, we came to verse 20. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And so, the same is true today. When somebody comes and they are a false teacher, you know them by their fruits. Do they call good what God calls evil? False teacher. Do they remove the requirements of God to make life easier for you? False teacher. Do they add human-based legalism, additional rules and regulations, things that God has never told people to do? False teaching. And, and so often, false teaching, though we all get stuff wrong, but so often those who consistently teach falsely, it, they're giving you bad fruit because they as a tree are only able to produce bad fruit because they themselves are not righteous. That's where we got up to. So let's follow that flow, let's follow that context, and let's look with fresh eyes at this very well-known few verses of Scripture. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A nice summary statement that tells us everything that's going to follow. That not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, who claims that Jesus is in charge, Lord as in the Hebrew sense, Adonai, or perhaps even declares his deity, Lord, Lord, as in Yahweh, Yahweh. Not everybody who claims to be a servant of Jesus is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. Now that has to be understood in context. It has to be understood in context. We've just talked about good fruit and bad fruit. We just talked about the fact it's to do with people taking scripture, bowing before scripture, embracing scripture, not twisting it and changing it and manipulating it, but just being students of the word, which would lead them away from Pharisaic Judaism and into true uh, discipleship of Jesus. We've just seen all of that. And so... What's going to happen is this, is that those who truly follow the way, do you remember verses 13 and 14, reference to Psalm 1, there are two ways, the way that leads to destruction and the way of wisdom, that only those who are truly saved will be able to walk the way that they should and will produce the fruit that they should, will come before scripture as they should and will show themselves to be disciples of Jesus. Now, the application of this is very, very simple in one sense, which is that words are easy, but words don't allow you to produce good fruit if you yourself are not a good tree. If you have not been saved, then you may be able to produce fruit that you can paint, that you can cover up. 
You know, you might say, oh, I'm producing oranges. I want to produce apples. Quickly, let me get my red paintbrush. And there are people who can put on religious clothes, can look and play the part to some degree. But only those who are truly saved will be able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, while that is obviously true, and while that is how we obviously typically approach this passage, and and while there is more application of this that I shall come to in a moment, I want you to look at something that you may have not noticed before, which is absolutely astonishing. Is that Jesus has now escalated his argument. He has been speaking for the vast majority of the Sermon on the Mount about the Pharisees. He's been talking about the Pharisees. They are the ones who are judging and shouldn't judge because they have logs in their eyes. They are the ones who are trying to show righteousness before men and are losing whatever reward they might otherwise have. They are the ones who are proclaiming to be righteous when in fact they're not. They ultimately are the ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. He has been talking and condemning in fairly subtle terms, that by the time we get to chapter 24, and tw- sorry, 23, will not be subtle anymore. But he has been speaking about the Pharisees. But what is the one thing that the Pharisees never did up till now, and never did after this, and have never done and will never do. They have never called Jesus Lord. This is not talking to the Pharisees anymore. Jesus has just shifted his entire argument. You see, last time, when we are going through good trees and bad trees, producing good fruit and bad fruit, when we're talking about sheep... Uh, sheep's clothing and ravenous wolves, when we're talking about false prophets and false teaching, we can look outside. We can look at those who profess Christian faith in some way, shape or form, but their, their fruit shows that they are not really part of us. We can look at the, uh, uh, the cults that profess to be Christian. Hey, Say the Mormons, we're just Christians like you. And you're like, uh, no you're not, you're a cult, you're not Christian at all. You deny the deity of Jesus Christ, you talk about Jesus, you talk about Jesus being Lord, but he's not the Jesus that I worship, because the Jesus that I worship is God incarnate. And the God you worship is just one of many gods, and you're going to become a god, so please don't tell me that we are the same faith. Because we're not, we're not the same faith at all. In fact, Mormonism has more in common with Islam than it does with Christianity, but we can talk about that perhaps another day. But suffice to say that there are those who clearly, although they claim to be part of us, that aren't. Or or perhaps we can look at the TV evangelists. Perhaps we can look at the Kenneth Copeland and the Joel Osteens and all those kinds of people who want to tell you to have your best life now, who want to tell you to touch the screen that you might be healed, who, who want to, to tell you to, to write a check to, to illustrate your faith that God might do mighty things through you, who tell you that you're kingdom kids, kids, and you can have everything that you desire if only you have enough faith. Better sign a bigger check just to show your faith. Those kind of guys, we look at their fruit and they're bad and they're terrible and they're not part of us. Or or whether we look at something more traditional and acceptable like the Roman Catholic Church 
which still, even the all these centuries later, still holds to the Council of Trent, and that if you believe that salvation is by faith alone and not by works, then according to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, you are an anathema. Well, then I'm an anathema, because that's what I hold with every fiber of my being, that we are saved by faith and not by works, that no man should boast. And maybe perhaps if you want to go a little closer to home, though not too much closer to home, you can look at the crazy, wacky mega churches that surround this nation, and you can look at guys like you know, Stephen Furtick and Andy Stanley, who who denies pretty much the authority of the Old Testament these days. And all of these guys that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to their churches where they can tell them about God and these people wouldn't know their backside from their elbow when it comes to Scripture. They know nothing about the Bible. They mangle it, they mash it, they destroy it, and they are all about building empires and they know nothing about building the kingdom of God. So we can talk about all of those people and we can say, wolves, sheep's clothing, bad fruit, simple. Jesus is gone beyond that now. And he has gone beyond those people. And I know, I know that the sermons on this passage that you will have previously heard will typically talk about those people because they say, Lord, Lord. All the the false teachers today that profess to be Christians say, Lord, Lord. Even the Mormons say, Jesus is Lord, routinely. Lord, 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 Lord. So they all do that, so we typically have sermons on these verses, and we point it at those people, because you got the verses about sheep and wolves beforehand. But that is not the context and flow of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has said, we know that those false teachers are ravenous wolves, bad fruit. We've done that. But he says, I need you to know this as well. That there'll be those who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and just like those false teachers, these ones will also miss out. In other words, for us to apply this passage accurately... We have to go beyond the overt and obvious false teachers. Even if in our day they say, Lord, Lord. And we have to do what Jesus is doing with this text, which is to take a text and bring it and apply it to us. Within our walls. We are a church who, since I've been here, seven or so years ago, has always preached the Bible and we've always sought to preach it faithfully. I'm conscious about letting anybody use my pulpit. I don't want anything to be taught from this place that is inaccurate. And I believe that we've done a good job of that. And we've taught the word faithfully. And yet, during that period of time, we've had... Not one, not two, but many people who have made this church their home and called this church home. And in the time that they've been sitting here, they were sitting as unregenerate people dead in their sins. They've been sitting here hearing the word of God preached. Maybe nodding their heads occasionally. Maybe coming up afterwards and shaking my hand and saying, good sermon, pastor. 
and yet having no place in the kingdom of heaven. I don't believe that that is because of a failing of the preaching. I don't believe that is because of a failing of anybody else in the church. It is just the nature of a deceitful heart to deceive itself. So what do we do? We take these words ever so seriously and we say this. Can I be sure that the very thing that I point the finger rightly at others for? Can I be sure that I'm not condemning myself at the same time? Am I producing good fruit? Am I willing to die to myself? Do I mourn over my sin? When I mess up, do I feel sin and shame and mourn over it? It's not just, I'm not just remorseful, I'm not just, I'm not just upset that I haven't lived to my own standards, but I mourn. Because I hunger and I thirst after righteousness. And I ask God to make me more righteous. And I bow before his sovereign word. And I don't take the bits I don't, I like and get rid of the bits I don't like. But I, I just embrace the authority of scripture. And I embrace his sovereignty. Is that us? Is that our lives? Because the reality is, is that not everybody who claims to be Christian is going to be saved. That's outside the church. But equally, context of these verses, not everybody within good churches are going to be saved. Sometimes people go to good churches and get good teaching because it's just the church that they grew up in. Sometimes they, they get good teaching because, because they're married to someone who wants good teaching. Sometimes they come and they get good teaching because they like other things that the church does. Maybe they like the worship music. Maybe they have nice kids that hang out with their kids. Maybe, maybe they have a pastor with a funny accent and they like Downton Abbey. I don't know. All sorts of things. But there's all sorts of reasons that someone could come to a church. And when you come to a church and sermons are taught, you learn things. And so you quickly pick up theological truths. You learn the lingo. Suddenly you become fluent in Christianese. How are things going? Oh, thank you, brother. By the grace of God, we're doing well. But none of that, none of that is a cover for bad fruit. And and there's nowhere, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is more obvious than when we're confronted with the Word of God. And it speaks to our hearts and it speaks to our lives. How do we respond? 
Because if you've been brought up in the church, if you were raised a Christian, if you've been in churches all your life, then when somebody says, Jesus is Lord, then you can just say, Amen. And there's no challenge in that, because it's just window dressing. You've heard it a million times before. Even the Mormons say Jesus is Lord. You, you can hear about Jesus dying on a cross, and you're like, no, I'm cool with that. I believe in that, that that happened. I want to have a ticket to heaven. I'll go with that. That's fine. You see, there's no challenge in that. But what happens, friends, when the Word of God speaks to your idols? What happens when the Bible says stuff that you don't want to hear? What happens when it addresses your worldliness? What happens when it speaks to your compromise? What happens when it says stuff that you don't want to believe? Then we see which knees have bowed. Then we see. Because be under no illusion. There will be some that on that day, verse 22, will get an incredible shock. Now let's look how it progresses in the next verse. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. You see, we're not talking Pharisees. They were going to, they weren't going to do anything in Jesus' name. The only time they would use the name of Jesus is when they say that he he does stuff by the power of Beelzebub. This is not the Pharisees. This is people within the home team. And when he won't let them in the kingdom on that day, they turn to the things that they did. Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do miracles? Be frank about this, folks. What you do in a religious sense is going to hold no weight on that day. But, but, but I went to church every Sunday. I even turned up for the women's Bible study. I came to the mid, I went to evening services. Or maybe I was a pastor and I preached thousands of sermons. It's worthless. It's just worthless. Because if we haven't bowed the knee, if we haven't repented, if we haven't turned from our life, our desires, our self-reliance, and bowed the knee before Christ and His Word and His will, who, who are we kidding? Add in every religious work and deed that you want on top of that. Make it look, make it look as, as good as you can possibly make it look, but it's fake and it's nonsense. And it even goes as far as the miraculous. Now, I think I want to apply this in two different ways. I mean, firstly, I want to apply this for us, because I think we need to be really, really careful that we don't say things like, you know, I go to these services, I go to a good church, I go to a Bible teaching church, you know, uh, you know, we read the Bible and we study this and we do... Just be really careful that that is not your basis 
But I think on the other hand, we have to look very carefully at the fact that there are miraculous things that are attributed here that seem to occur. If you, know, if you think this is literal, you just need to read ahead to chapter 10. In chapter 10, he calls the 12 apostles and he gives them authority to cast out demons. And Matthew specifically tells us, and one of them was Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Just, just get your heads around that for a minute. The disciples went out in pairs and there was a lot of demonic activity at that time. And they cast demons out. And Judas Iscariot, who was never saved, cast demons out. And the demons went out because he cast them out. He did miracles. If you read your Bible, this should not be difficult for you. Do you remember Moses at the time of the Passover and the plagues? He throws down his staff and it becomes a a, a snake. And what happens to the to the magicians of Pharaoh? They say, cool, blimey, Moses, I can't do that. I'm a fake magician. No, that's not what they say. They cast theirs down and they become snakes as well. And you can go a little further. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read to you. But we're told in Second Thessalonians... That there is going to be an apostasy, a falling away from the faith when the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction is revealed. He opposes and exalts himself. And how on earth is someone going to cause people to apostatize from professions of the Christian faith? Well, his coming is in accord with the working of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. I think the majority of so-called evangelical churches in America today would also call themselves charismatic. And charismatic churches have placed great weight on signs and wonders and miracles. And yes, the worst of them fake stuff all the time, and I know that it's fake, yes, Nobody had gold dust falling from heaven and nobody had gold put in their teeth and people haven't been raised from the dead in Bethel um, Church in Reading. I understand that there's loads of charlatans and what have you. But can you not see what that stuff is doing? It is taking millions of people in Christian churches and it is getting them ready to believe whoever does a real miracle in front of their eyes. Satan does real miracles. Miracles are not the the defining factor of legitimacy. Do you not remember chapter 4? I know we've taken our time, we take time in the Sermon on the Mount, but it wasn't that long ago that we were in chapter... Maybe it was, but... If you're reading this in one in one go, it's not that much before that you're in chapter 4, and there's Jesus who is literally at death's door because he is now at the point where he's in the wilderness and he's run out of calories and he's got no fat and muscle left to burn up and his body's starting to burn his internal organs and Satan comes to him to tempt him and Satan takes him to the top of the temple. What do you think he did? 
Did you, do you think he gave Jesus, here's a rope and some crampons and let's climb away up. Jesus can barely walk or stand. Oh, what, you think, you think it was just a vision? Then where's the temptation to him to jump off the temple if it's just a vision? No, there were miracles going on there. Don't be distracted by clever words. Don't be distracted by clever deeds. Bow before Christ. Bow before his word and his will. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, his will, his way. Put aside your own desires, your own self-righteousness, your selfishness, your pride. Put it all behind you and just bow your knee again before Christ. So that when you do so and say, Lord, Lord, there won't be one day an incredibly nasty shock. I've been in this life for too long. Doing ministry, preaching the word. I've lost count of the number of people who professed faith, who walked away. My peers, my contemporaries, the majority of people I've kept in touch with who were my fellow Christians in school and in university, college years, no longer profess Christ. The the majority. I've lost count of the number of people who have been raised in Christian homes whose faith was not their own, but nobody knew until they were in their teens or twenties or thirties. And I praise God for his mercy that some of those false professions of faith were exposed before that day when they would say, Lord, Lord. Verse 23, the response of Jesus is significant in a couple of different ways. Let's look at this. He says, I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Let's be absolutely clear about the teaching of Scripture here. There is not such a thing as a person who becomes a Christian and who changes their mind. When we speak of apostasy, we talk about someone who is professing Christian faith, who then walks away from that profession. We're not talking about somebody who is saved truly, receives the Holy Spirit, and then somehow the Holy Spirit leaves them. That was possible, the departing of the Holy Spirit was possible in the Old Testament. That's what happened to Saul. That's why David, after he got caught in sin with Bathsheba, He then prays in his psalm of repentance, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But it is something that is impossible post-Pentecost. The entirety of Paul's argument in the middle chapter of Romans, the points that he makes in in Ephesians in in chapter 1, 
in, in second and first and second Corinthians. I mean, it's just littered through the New Testament. The whole point of John's gospel and the way he presents the ministry of the Holy Spirit is this, that you and I, if we are truly saved, are not like the people in Jesus' day. We are not merely people who are, believe, but we're people who have been given the Holy Spirit. Every Christian today is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Holy Spirit is God's down payment guaranteeing that he will finish his work of redemption. There is not a possibility for someone to become a Christian and then unbecome a Christian. So what do we see when we see people going to churches, speaking Christianese, reading their Bible, doing all sorts of things? Maybe even pastors. What do we do when we see them deny their faith? We say that their profession of faith was false all along. They never knew him. And there have been some high profile ones. And there will be others. And as the time goes on, these things will become more prevalent and not less prevalent. But let's be absolutely clear. Those who end up apart from Christ never knew him. Never. And so those who never knew him, he says to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, in in one sense, this is fairly easy. He's emphasizing that it can't just be a profession saying, Lord, Lord. You can't just say it, that there has to be evidence. We've had the good fruit, the bad fruit. He's applying that to those within his own camp. And we've talked about that. We've talked about how the fruit is not just character, though, of course, it includes character, but it is our, our, our... our trust in Christ and our bowing before him and his will and his word. But you've got to go beyond what you see here. And why? Regulars will know this. Because here we have capital letters in your pew Bibles if you're using them. Other versions may have italics or what have you. But this is our clue that what is happening here is that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Now, this may not be what some of you are used to, but at this church, we're very used to it. Whenever we see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, what do we do? We turn there. So let's turn to Psalm 6. We had Jadeen read that for us this morning. And so, we will go to Psalm 6. Because if Jesus is quoting to us from Psalm 6, then we kind of need to know it, don't we? (laughs) You know? Have you, have you ever been, I mean, I, I, I find this happens more now I'm getting older, that there'll be a group of younger people and they'll make some sort of knowing reference to some sort of popular music or movie or something and they'll go, oh, like this, <laughs> and I'll just be, whoosh, that joke just kind of missed me, I just, I have no idea what it is that you're talking about. And I think sometimes in the Bible we're, we're like that. In that the, the, the writers will quote scripture and we're like, yeah, he just said these words. No, he didn't just say those words. He quoted scripture. Which passage is that? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't. Let me look at the cross-reference notes in my Bible. Well, that's a good start. 
but you're expected to know, and you're expected to know the context. So let's look at Psalm 6. O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is one of the first of the lament psalms. It is the one where there is uh, clearly a hard time being had by David. It's a psalm of David. That's very, very, very important. You should also note, by the way, that in, in verse 0, which I haven't read, which I probably should have done, um, psalms often have verse 0. Um, by that I mean the prescript, where it says, For the choir director with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. That is inspired, friends, hence me referring to it as, as verse 0. And it's relevant. Do you know what a Sheminith is? No, I don't either. No, no one seems to know. So we, we will have to pass on that, though it may well be a musical notation. Um, and as indeed the stringed instruments are. Where it says for the choir director, it's really intriguing to me, um, it literally says to the preeminent one, the most important one. And if that is a musical direction like stringed instruments, then I guess that's the choir director or worship leader, right? But who's the most important person in the Psalms? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's not the worship leader. The center person in the Psalms is the Messiah. And there's a commentator called Jim Hamilton who um, suggests, he, he hypothesizes that whenever you see for the choir director, to the, to the preeminent one, that actually it's a heads up that this is about, the, there's something about the Messiah here you don't want to miss. And when you see that in combination with it being a psalm of David, who remember the Messiah is the son of David, and that in the psalms what happens to David and what happens to the Messiah just kind of get blended together in a way that you're supposed to note, because they are both anointed ones, and you're supposed to make that connection, then doubly so we have something messianic going on here. Okay? So David is saying, don't reprove me in your wrath. He's suffering under the wrath of God. I think already that with the benefit of hindsight, we can see some messianic overtones here. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Now, I'm not, it's not my intention to... So we have time to preach Psalm 6 in its entirety. We can make all sorts of observations about how it's his, his body physiologically is suffering, and that's connected to his soul and him internally suffering. But the cry is the main thing. How much longer do I have to go through this? Many of us have lamented in similar ways. The lament goes on. Return, O Yahweh. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Don't save me because I'm good. Don't save me because I'm nice. Don't save me because I've earned it. Save me on the basis of your covenant love. Because of your goodness, please save me. For there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks. We think of hell as purely a bad place, and we should because it is now, but Sheol is just the place of the dead. If my suffering leads to death ultimately, how am I going to give you praise for saving me from my suffering? I can't. 
So save me that I might proclaim your name. Save me for your name's sake. Most of us, when we're suffering, we're praying that our suffering would end for our sakes because, because that's the right thing to do. Rather than, you have no need to do this, but on the basis of your love and mercy, would you do this, that you might be glorified through you relieving my suffering. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. I hate skimming this text. We did teach Psalm 6 before. It's on the website if you want to go there. But this is brutal. Some of you know that degree of suffering. Some of you have lived through things whereby this is not just poetic imagery, but you have literally had sodden pillows from your constant tears. And verses like this are just a huge encouragement that God sees and he knows. And that he can be cried out to for him to rescue you from this type, this extent of suffering. But notice at the end of verse 7 that in David's case, it has happened because of his adversaries. One of the key themes of the book of Psalms is adversaries, enemies. The enemies of God are the enemies of the anointed one. That was right there at the beginning. Psalm 1, there are just two ways. And the righteous one has his way. And he's not going to go in the, he's not going to walk in the counts of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. He loves the law. He bows before the law and he prospers. But the wicked are not so. And it concludes that Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. We're already there in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already had reference to these two ways in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Then Psalm 2, which is the other main foundation of the Psalms, we see that the, that the nations are opposed, they're, they're, they're against Yahweh and his anointed one. And who is that anointed one in Psalm 2? It is the Son who will be given the nation as his inheritance. The son is the king, is the anointed one in Psalm 2. And the leaders who are enemies of God and the anointed one are warned to serve him with fear and to kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. There's a way of the unrighteous and that way will perish and that way leads to perishing or destruction, Matthew 7. And the, those who are going to perish are those who don't fear Yahweh and don't kiss the sun because if you're opposed to Yahweh, you're opposed to the sun, you're opposed to his king, you're opposed to his anointed one. And that in the Psalms is where David and Jesus get merged because David is the anointed one and David is the king. He's God's chosen one. So when we see David suffering... There's a parallel with the Messiah who's going to suffer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Psalm 22? Do you understand? And therefore, if you are an enemy of David, you are an enemy of God. And so enemies are just the theme throughout the Psalms. There's two teams. There's the team that is for God and his anointed one, and there's the team that's opposed to God. So in Psalm 6, when we see adversaries, it's that theme 
And so then David says this, the anointed one, the king, says this, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That's the verse that's being quoted by Jesus. There are those, there is a time of suffering, there is a time of not ruling, there is a time of persecution that the anointed one goes through. Satan took him to this to this high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, if you bow down and worship me, they're yours. And Jesus did not turn around and say, don't be silly, they're mine, they're not yours. He never said that. Jesus had to go to the cross and then God says, all authority on heaven and earth is now yours. And, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father And he has that authority, but he's not yet sitting on his throne on the earth. How do I know? Oh, I know. Because right now, I see a president that doesn't bow the knee before Jesus. I see a governor of the state that doesn't bow the knee before Jesus. And this country and this state is no different to so many others, where people just don't bow the knee before Jesus, because Jesus isn't ruling and reigning on his throne on earth. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And there is a time when there is still much mourning, and there is a time when there is still much suffering. But the time is going to come when the suffering of the anointed one comes to an end, and he says, depart from me, workers of iniquity. So you have to choose your side. And the Pharisees didn't choose the right side. They were opposed to Jesus. And by the time we get to Matthew 12, they say, you do what you do by the power of Beelzebub, and you're nothing to do with Yahweh. You're a false one. They chose their side. And there are people within our own ranks. There are people who who think that they're saved, who've never truly chosen Jesus, because really what they've done is they've chosen themselves And Jesus is just a t-shirt they put on top. A bumper sticker that they wear. Fear Yahweh, kiss the sun. This is the language of the Psalms. And I want you to see this with its messianic context as we finish this psalm. It is the anointed one who is speaking. It is the anointed one whose suffering is going to come to an end. It is the anointed one who is going to establish his kingdom. And it is him who, when he comes, says, get away from me, workers of iniquity. You see how accurately Jesus quotes that in Matthew? And then he says, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. He has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. Do you know what? When we think of suffering, and we think of our suffering, oh, I suffer so much, we don't think about the one who suffers. The king has not yet been given his kingdom. And one day, that wait will be over. And one day, the world will be made right. And one day, those who oppose Christ will bow the knee, but it will be too late. And we now get to choose which side we're on. We get to say, am I going to bow the knee? Am I not going to bow the knee? And if God has given us mercy and opens our eyes, we will bow the knee before him 
and we will choose the side of Christ. And we will put aside ourselves, we'll put aside what we want, we'll put aside our goals and our dreams and our passions, and we will put everything down before him. We will remove our crown and put it at the feet of the king of kings. Because the day is coming when the only ones who will be safe are the ones that chose his way and found refuge in him. And on that day, verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed and they shall turn back and they will suddenly be ashamed. I'm out of time. I had a whole bunch of Psalms written down where being ashamed is linked to being the enemies of God. It comes from Genesis chapter 2 where Adam and Eve sinned and then they were naked and ashamed. We see it elsewhere. Psalm 14, verse 6. You were put to shame in the counsel of the afflicted, but Yahweh is his refuge. I wanted you to see, and you can have to take my word for it, you can write it down, Psalm 14, verse 6, Psalm 25, verses 2 and 20, Psalm 31, verse 1, Psalm 71, verse 1. But again and again in the Psalms, there is a contrast between shame and refuge. You get to take refuge in the son whom you kiss, Psalm 2, or you will be ashamed. And that is the context of Psalm 6. And that's why Jesus quotes it in Matthew 7. Because what is going to happen one day is that those who have not bowed the knee before Christ are going to suddenly have shame. And I want you to see the irony at the end of Psalm 6. It says they will turn back and suddenly be ashamed. And that word turning is a word that is often means repent. In other words, there will come a time when they will turn, but it will be too late to turn. There will come a time when they bow the knee, but it's too late to bow the knee. There will come a time when they will confess that he's Lord, but it's too late to confess that he's Lord. And so the question that we have, friends, and the question we have to ask ourselves as we return to Matthew 7 and as we close is simply this. You may say, Lord, Lord. You may have a Jesus t-shirt, a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker, not of this world, I believe is the cool one today. You, you, you may have worship CDs in your car. You may have a Bible beside your bed. But which path are you on? Because the one that leads to destruction is, way and bro- is a way that is broad. And it's so easy to go on. Because it just involves you doing what you want. And then putting on Christian clothing. And the reason that the narrow way is so constricted is that it involves turning from yourself, your will, your way, your declaration of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, your right to rule, your desire to be in control, you wanting your own way, just taking it all and saying, I've had enough of myself just had enough of myself. 
I've had enough of my path. I've had enough of my decisions, my declarations. Your way, Jesus. Your way and your way alone. We may have prayed it once. We may have never prayed it. We may have prayed it a million times. But let's pray it together one more time now, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we turn from our sin. We turn from our declared right to live as we wish. We turn from our declared right to decide what is right and wrong. We turn from our goals, our dreams, our non-negotiables. And we bow the knee before you. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. May we mourn over sin. May we hunger and thirst after righteousness, knowing that when we ask for that, you will give. When we seek it, we will find. And when we knock, you will open that door. Grant us a more righteous life as you work by the power of your spirit within us that we might live and walk in a manner that is worthy of those who have been called. And may we see the fruits of salvation in our lives, that we might be assured that on that day we will feel no shame and that we will have our refuge in the Son. It is His feet that we kiss this day. Amen. Thank you.